Hi, everybody. Welcome to Podcast of a Lady on Fire, where we explore the filmmaking, themes, and community involved in Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We are your hosts. I'm Laurel Hachinova. And I am Audrey Nee. Oh, my God. Okay, if you're listening to this, it's now 2021, I think, unless you've traveled back in time and listened to this. So welcome <laughs> to the new year. Yay, we did it. Did we? I don't know. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. Yay. Everything's great. A couple of quick disclaimers before we dive in. Neither of us speak French, so apologies as usual if we say anything in French. And this episode will contain very specific, but also abstract, I think, spoilers. <laughs> Today, we are welcoming back our resident historian, Laura. Hi, Laura. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back. Nice to be back. I'm very excited to be talking about ancient history today <laughs> thanks for kicking off 2021 with us the fact that this is going to be released on new year's day and we're like going to be talking about looking back and we're yes. looking back on 2020 i think it's the, the perfect theme for perfect. the episode oh and for any of you who didn't catch laura's previous episode that is episode 31 laura is an archaeologist historical consultant history teacher from london so do go check that out if you haven't we talked about how Portrait of a Lady on Fire reframes history and we honestly kind of ran the gamut on like historical and generally fascinating stuff so really good episode yeah do check that out I've said that like three times now but you should (laughs) check it out that's how much I mean it yeah (laughs) okay great don't move forward until you listen to that actually (laughs) yeah just do whatever you want but yeah today Laura is back to talk about a little myth that you might have heard of (laughs) called Orpheus and Eurydice which we thought would be the perfect topic to ring in the new year with as we walk out of the dark cave, (laughs) turn around, Uh, and say goodbye to 2020. (laughs) Sending it to the underworld like Eurydice. But I also think that metaphor works the other way around because Orpheus does not have a great time of it, right, after leaving the cave. And so it's like, are we Eurydice saying goodbye to Orpheus, who's 2020, or the other way around? We're going to get very entangled in the whole, like, looking at, looking back, looking who's looking. (laughs) Perfect. So, yeah, thank you once again for joining us. All right. So just as a preface, the myth goes, and Laura, please correct me if I get anything wrong. (laughs) Orpheus and Eurydice were deeply in love. They got married. And on their wedding day, Eurydice was nearly assaulted by somebody. And in running away from that person, she fell into like a nest of snakes and she was bit by at least one of them and she died. Orpheus found her already dead and he was so distraught, so overcome with grief that he journeyed to the underworld. I love how that's just like, he did it. Like, I don't know how you journey to the underworld, but he does. And he is a renowned musician and singer and poet. And because he is so capable at singing and crafting verse, he convinces Hades and Persephone to give Eurydice back because she will eventually be theirs anyway as everyone dies eventually. And they were so moved that they agreed. And on on one condition, he could not turn around as he journeyed back out of the underworld. Otherwise, did they say why? Anyway, I'm just going to keep going and then you can like just pile on all your corrections at the end (laughs) just really quickly i I think we're probably going to get into this later but there's so many variations of this yeah that's true that's true there are a lot of yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it depends on what source you get your myths from so he gets quite a long ways like he goes all the way to the you know the mouth of the underworld and then he it depends on uh, you know what retelling you're reading 
he is unable to not turn around. In in one of the ones that I I read, her footsteps were so gentle, and he wasn't sure if he was being tricked, and he just had to look. And so he turns around, and as he turns, he sees her ghostly form fall away back into the underworld. And then there there are things that happen post, but I think we'll get into that later. So okay, Laura, what <laughs> what did I, I? I'm sure that I messed up something, if not several things, but. Was that, did I get it? Like, was that retelling? Uh, okay. Kind of, yeah. Oh, I was, okay, I was, okay. I was, yeah, I was just going to talk a little bit more about, like, the sources oh, that you great. Yeah, let's mentioned that. kind of thing, if that makes sense. Before we go there, can we just really quickly, everyone go around and talk about what their relationship to this myth is? Because I'm curious, like, especially for the listeners, if everyone who watched the film mm-hmm. knew about it before sure. they saw it, or if some people were like, oh, I've never heard of this before. You know, it probably depends, like, where you grew up, you know, culturally, like, what kind of mythology you learned in school if you did it all yeah so yeah i'm curious guests first laura what's your what's your background (laughs) with this myth well i mean like greek mythology in general i guess i you know heard about these stories when i was pretty young like in primary school i remember having like a kind of comic like an illustrated version of greek myths type thing and orpheus was definitely in there but in terms of kind of like thinking about it in more critical ways like I studied classical archaeology and ancient history so you know you see Orpheus quite a lot on Greek vase painting and uh, you know lots of other artwork throughout time like that has classical reception in it which is why I think it's quite interesting that this is now like another like the film itself is now another art form that has used a story that is like you know at least 2,500 years old, probably older. And I think that's like kind of cool. And I think that's why like people like Greek myths as well, isn't it? And they're like, they kind of, you know, they're retold again and again. And it's also why I like the scene in general, like in the film, because you are seeing people like, you know, Sophie's never heard the story before yeah, it seems. Yeah. Right. So you are in the moment of the kind of like oral tradition of handing down this story. And you're seeing that like in real life, but also in a historical time period as well. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Eloise probably hadn't heard it before too, right? She did seem kind of, like, I think you could read it, you could read in that scene that Eloise had not read that either before. Because she Mm -hmm. did look kind of like she was studying it in real time. Yeah. And her expressions kind of like... Well, do you think that the book that she's reading is Marianne's book that she gives her at the beginning when she says, do you have a book? I do, yeah, yeah. I think so, I think so, yeah. Because it's not made explicit. That's true. So it could be just another book she has, but... Yeah, it's interesting if it is Marianne's yeah. book because then she's like reading it like for the first time. I think so because I think on the on the page that she draws on, it's another story in. Yeah, but it's never made clear that that's her Marianne's book either, is it? Isn't it? It's not, but I I think we can sort of implicitly infer that, right? I think it's the same like the same color throughout. Like she hands her a purplish <laughs> book. And, or like a violet. It's still not explicit. But yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's no scene where she's like, I am now reading from your book <laughs> that I have borrowed from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's true, that's true. Yeah. And and because she, she's reading a book. Or, oh no, maybe that is the book because it's in the first scene, isn't it? When, mm-hmm. After they first see each other. Yeah. Anyway, we got on a tangent already. <laughs> I mean, knowing Celine, it's probably the same book, right? Because it's yeah. And I think knowing Eloise as a character, as I do, <laughs> like, <laughs> your BFF Eloise. Well, she seems like a a voracious reader, right? So she's probably read all of the books in her house already. That's true. And so when she gets this new book, I'm sure that that's the book that she, you know, kind of 
holds on to. Yeah, that's a good point. Or reads from. Audrey, what is your experience with or your background with this myth? So I was trying to remember this and I remember reading like Edith Hamilton's mythology mm. in junior high, I think. And then maybe in English in high school, but I... I can't. I was like texting some high school friends yesterday. I was like, did we study this? But <laughs> no one has any specific recollection. So, yeah. And then I, I'm not sure if you all are familiar with the comic series Sandman, which is like my all time mm-hmm. favorite comic series by Neil Gaiman. But um, he dips a lot into this mythology, and Orpheus actually appears as a character of the Sandman's son, basically, like Aniris, who's like the god of dreams is Mm. i know in like the real myth orpheus is like apollo's son or sometimes another another dude (laughs) so there's a comic that covers the story which is pretty close i think to at least some versions of it but i would highly recommend checking that out because it's extremely good cool yeah so that's my background with this but laurel what's yours (laughs) so audrey and i were talking about this yesterday and i had a super super religious upbringing so it was very like fundamentalist christian and From what I can recall, the only exposure that I got to these sorts of stories was in order to sort of deride these cultures for being Mm. polytheists. (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't get closer inspection or I didn't I didn't really dive into any of these until like college. And for this particular myth, I think I wasn't really made aware of it until about like a decade ago when there was this indie video game that came out called Don't Look Back. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 a What's a perfect name. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's actually really well done too. It's a very sparse. It's kind of it's got this like 8-bit graphic look and you're just this tiny like pile of pixels basically that walks across a screen. And the character journeys into the underworld. It's not like a one-for-one retelling because the character has a gun, not like a liar and a, you know, and song. The gun replaces the liar? Yeah, basically. Like, yeah, because you shoot little, like, four-pixel bullets, right? Like, boop, boop. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he doesn't, like, he doesn't calm the three-headed dog. He just he, kills them. He kills okay, it, yeah. Okay, okay. It also only hunts oh, one wow. head. So it's not, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> it is definitely based on the Orpheus myth. At the end of the game, so I'm going to spoil the end of the game, oh but it came out a decade ago, so I mean, I feel like it's fair game right now. Fair game. He, I know, I know. As I said it, I was like, ah. So you get to the final boss of the game, right? You kill, I, I assume it's Hades, and you kill him, and then all of a sudden a ghost appears, and you head back. So you like travel through all the levels again. And as you get to where you started, which was at the grave of Eurydice, you stop because there's someone there. It's you. So you like you get to the grave, you're looking at yourself, and all of a sudden, like both you and Eurydice disappear. Huh. So Orpheus dies then. Orpheus dies in this one. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, oh, okay. It's kind of like they skipped ahead to where they get to be together. Okay. But it's really sparsely designed, and I, I really loved it because it makes you feel his journey through the underworld because you have to like you have to travel all the way to the end to get her and then you have to travel all the way back and then i think i read an interpretation of the ending of the game where what the maker is trying to communicate is that you can't bring people back from the dead you know like like the game is a fantasy the game is his fantasy it's a grieving lover's fantasy but no matter what once you wake up once you like snap yourself out of that fantasy you realize that there is no that's it like death is final so it's it was a really interesting medium to explore this myth in um and i think the game developer did really well with it but yeah that's my background with it (laughs) (laughs) it's cool 
it's like all like very different like versions yeah you know that we've had mm-hmm. of the story but ultimately the kind of theme is the same isn't it and now we're we're going to deconstruct for who knows how long just three <laughs> minutes of film right, right, like, right. Yeah, yeah, how yeah. it can like link to so many other things i don't know it's interesting so let's cover where the myth originally comes from and it's millions of interpretations <laughs> Yeah, just go ahead and tell us all of them. I will try to be. (laughs) Yeah, so what we've said already, and obviously the the bit that is in the film of Orpheus just going down into the underworld and and the kind of, you know, interaction with Eurydice is part of a wider range of stories that exist about Orpheus. He's actually one of the Argonauts from Jason and the Argonauts. He uses his lyre to sing over the sirens when they're, you know, trying to seduce the men into the water. And he was, yeah, like you said, kind of like known for his ability to make even inanimate objects kind of start dancing to his tunes and that kind of stuff. He actually basically becomes part of a mystery cult, like in the ancient world. And we have 87 short what they're called Orphic hymns that are really interesting for, you know, like historians because they're actually like prayers that were said, you know, like during actual rituals and we don't actually really have many of those that actually survive. So in that we can kind of tell, you know, like types of things that were said to the gods during sacrifices or during kind of religious rituals and stuff. But the actual kind of generic retelling of the Orpheus and Eurydice story comes from Ovid. And that is the book that they are reading is Ovid's Metamorphoses, book 10. That's where we get kind of like the story as we kind of know it, let's say, but it's part of a much larger book that has 246 different stories of people and things turning into other things mm. like me- oh, metamorphosizing over different <laughs> things so in, in this one it's like Eurydice turns into a shade let's say and goes down to the underworld like that's the transformation and also Orpheus transforming through his artwork post Eurydice's death type thing Ovid's actually a Roman he's writing in like the early first century AD but the Orphic hymns go back to at least the third century BC and the um, story of Orpheus with Jason the Argonauts is from Apollonius Rhodius in third century BC as well so we clearly know that like he is like a you know mythological figure in the ancient Greek world even though the main story about him we have in the surviving text from a Roman author but like this story also kind of like turning back and actually is in lots of other texts so in the Bible like and the Quran and in and in both the Old and New Testament the story of Lot and his wife like when they're fleeing Sodom and she turns back and she turns into a pillar of salt like that's based on Orpheus you know but I love the way that like ancient myths weave their way into like what have remained of religions today which, you know, like Christmas as well was Saturnalia in ancient Rome. That's why it's like mixed with, right. you know, like on the 25th of December, it like merged with other pagan mm-hmm. festivals that were on at the same time. And what I found very interesting is that there's actually one of the earliest in English texts that mention Orpheus is a 13th century medieval poem called Sir Orpheo, where weirdly the whole Orpheus story has been transferred into like medieval England. And so Thrace, which which is like in Northern Greece where Orpheus is meant to have come from is replaced as like Winchester in England. Oh, yeah. And like <laughs> Eurydice is called Herodis. And they actually kind of 
have a happier ending in the end oh. in that like she gets taken by another king in England and then he manages to like win her back and they they do live together in the castle at the end kind of thing but with a link a fascinating link to portrait that actually the style of poetry is called a Breton lay which is from Brittany oh, so yeah, it's a, yeah. mi- a mix hey. of middle english and old french is one of the oldest wow. English surviving oh. forms, oh, and it's cool. like I, I thought that was like yeah. a, a strange, a strange um, uh, link. I, that <laughs> I wasn't that. expecting. Yeah, totally. but, right, way to bring yeah. it back to portrait. <laughs> I think we're definitely like obviously overanalyzing this. But, like, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> I don't know yeah. whether like you know Celine had no. this in mind. Like, she, it's no, all no. intentional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she meant for someone to find that link, and you did it. Good job. <laughs> That's what I've studied for, clearly, is only use for my strange knowledge. <laughs> we can actually shut the podcast down because that's that's what this all was oh, for. Oh, wow. <laughs> this was an escape room and you figured out how to get out. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, basically, there's like lots of interpretations of the myth like throughout time. And I think that what was interesting about the film is that they have taken three interpretations that are characterized by the three mm. women and kind of like ran with them. And we can also see parallels of of those three interpretations in other classical reception from different time periods as well, which I find very interesting. Yeah, maybe now would be a good time to set up that scene, actually, just so everyone's on the same page. So they are, this is like post-dinner, right? They're just like hanging out post-dinner. <laughs> yeah, it's like, drinking you know, wine, drinking yeah. wine, like smoking a cigar. And Eloise is reading from a book, which we are assuming at this point is the book that she borrowed from Marianne. And she, which is Ovid's Metamorphosis right. book. Mm-hmm. Which actually also, sorry, as a side note, interestingly, the actual text copy, I mean, it might come back to this if we, when we talk about page 28, but like from the writing that you can see, it's been worked out that it's actually a French translation <gasps> from 1732. So it's like an actual edition that would have existed wow. in the 18th century. Oh, the attention to detail of the <laughs> research great. to actually find like an actual object that actually would date from then is so cool. I love that. Love Love that attention to historical yeah, detail. Yeah. <laughs> but interestingly, they're actually not reading that translation. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. So okay. they're actually reading a translation from 1881. Oh, yeah, this is great. Okay, no, please. <laughs> because it's a bit shorter, so it's oh, like easier. You know, okay. like it's an abridged version because the actual story. Here. <laughs> 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 it, it, it's quite long and it's a bit long-winded. It's like mm. depends on the translation can affect like how you read it yeah, not optimized yeah. for the film. but i just love that they've actually used an actual like yeah but that's anyway. cool that's cool yeah it probably really sort of miffed celine to not be able to read directly from that translation it's like oh historical accuracy but the story is more important than than the accuracy at this point maybe in this this fiction they like wrote the history like this is <laughs> what i don't know like maybe like they <laughs> invented this version reading from the 1730 version oh nice so they like were interpreting it yeah. in real time yeah. and eloise was just abridging it as she was reading it yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Eloise, never read the story before as we've already asked she's <laughs> just like simultaneously abridging it she's actually reading it in the original latin but oh, she's yeah, just translating perfect. it in yeah, french like yeah. translating it as well yes yeah thanks yeah. it all yeah, yeah. works i wouldn't put it past her she yeah no, well she could smart. do that definitely because if she was living uh you know as a nun and in a, a convent yeah, she'd be speaking true. in latin all the time yeah, so yeah. she would be able to speak latin I'm sure yeah. this is all factual so you heard it here first Eloise <laughs> is interpreting Latin in real time as she reads to Sophie and Marianne I love these conspiracy theories but yeah <laughs> So, okay, so really quickly, they're they're all sitting around the table. The scene starts when Orpheus is convincing uh, the gods of the underworld to let him take Eurydice back. 
and then he is successful at that and they journey out and he turns around and blah 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 and so sophie i think is the first person to react to this and she is not having it she is not having it it's like why did he do that that was so stupid all he had to do was like keep walking and then you know they would have been together and then they get into this not argument but you know they get into this discussion where marianne sort of reinterprets it in her own way and says that i think that he made the poet's choice which was how did she say it like he preferred the memory of her yeah Mm -hmm. and then eloise comes in with her interpretation which is that maybe it was actually eurydice who told him to turn around so that's the scene and that's what we're working with i mean like firstly i just i love the scene for a multitude of reasons but like i think it's filmed really interestingly Mm -hmm. because you feel like one of them the way they put them at head height so that you're like part of the conversation the fact that they're like swigging wine (laughs) whilst they have this conversation really does like also make you think about things like Plato's Symposium, you know, where these like all male drinking parties where they would have these discussions about what is love and all of this, which is interestingly one of the, in Plato's Symposium, the men there discuss uh, heterosexual versus homosexual love and Plato and Socrates, etc., come to the conclusion that homosexual love or desire is the most manly of all desires, which I find very interesting. And the fact that all the kind of like queer elements of ancient Greece are always like very much removed from all of these stories mm-hmm. do you know what i mean mm-hmm. i don't think most people generally think of like socrates and plato as like part of that like story i mean because all, all of these delineations all come from the 19th century anyway like they're so modern in terms of these yeah things anyway <laughs> no, no. it's like a socratic debate isn't it yeah, like they're just talking yeah. about what they think and i think that like we just don't see that like in most films ever what, what's the that does that thing isn't there the you know, like when it's like women in a film only ever talk about a man or something like that. Oh, the Bechdel test? Is that Bechdel? Like, are there two women who have names who talk to each other about something other than a man? Yeah. I mean, I guess we can say that Orpheus is technically a man, but like, <laughs> it, it's interesting that it's like a literature debate, isn't it? Do you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like, and I think we don't usually <laughs> see that. And I think that, you know, they used to say that like women were only sometimes educated because husbands might sometimes want to talk to their wives wow. which is <laughs> tragic and awful but like this shows that actually you know yeah like amongst themselves women could obviously have intellectual conversations and even people like sophie who might not actually be 100 percent literate yeah. right you know because of her status and stuff and that's why she's listening rather than reading it herself potentially doesn't mean that she doesn't have like really valid interpretations and yeah, stuff. yeah you know? that's a great point I want to stick on that one for a bit because it wasn't until you just said that right now that I, had, I hadn't I had thought about how... Okay, so women, of course, are very rarely depicted as having these intellectual conversations, especially in this period of time. But more so women of... Yeah, you're right, like Sophie's status. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I don't think there's any film in which, yeah, like they have a, a conversation with Name them. another film where someone who is a housemaid or, you know, some kind of help is having an intellectual discussion amongst other women like you're right yeah i I just it's part of that kind of like the horizontal relationships between the three of them that the film also explores that's just so interesting isn't it like and they don't talk down to her you know they're not like condescending about anything or like well you wouldn't have heard about this but it's not like uh sophie like (laughs) uh, like, obviously that's not the interpretation (laughs) like how do you not know that like they're actually it's actually because sophie questions it that the other two question it yeah so actually sophie is the linchpin there oh my 
my god, that's so amazing. I feel like this scene is more of the epitome of like the sisterhood and camaraderie mm. than than maybe any other scene where the three of them are together. Yes, although I also find the scene very interesting between Marianne and Eloise. But let's stick on Sophie for a second. So <laughs> I felt like Sophie was quite rightly angry actually mm-hmm. at the story. Oh, for sure. And from my point of view, that potentially parallels her own experience because I think that she was just like why can't men control themselves you know he could <gasps> she says he could he could right, resist right, and he right. chose not to what? and I have wondered whether you know we don't know the circumstances right. of her pregnancy I fear that they you know as a maid and stuff may not have been uh, necessarily consensual right right the power dynamics at play yeah yeah oh, and I think God. that she's like why why are we trying to make excuses for men that they can't decide or they claim that they love you or whatever right. but then like you know yeah and i think that that's very interesting as a point in general i definitely have thought that each of their responses do parallel like their perspectives on life mm. well we'll get into well also like point. on a in a class way like does she think that it's weird for orpheus to disobey a direct instruction like hades his superior his literal like god says don't do this and he does it anyway and she's like why would you do that you're obviously gonna get punished do you know what i mean yeah i can see that that's not how i took it there i i did definitely think of it as more when i initially thought about her response i just saw her as taking like the most literal interpretation of it like you were given a very simple directive you know and you couldn't even do that one thing so i felt like she was looking at orpheus like some kind of idiot because she seems to be very sort of like knowledgeable and how things go and she's you know very effective at what she's what she does and she knows her way around like self-induced abortions and and you know she's just kind of like a world a world wise person and so i i initially thought that it kind of blew her mind that he was unable to do this one simple thing yeah well i mean they say that you know it's like the story of like a man that just can't trust a woman to do even the simplest thing of following him and has to check on her and therefore turns around yeah yeah yeah. i think it's interesting too because i I think her perspective is more like the observer which she she is in the situation whereas like marianne and eloise are looking at it from like a different angle i feel like marianne's response is actually the most traditional of the responses really in many ways like oh he's this great poet oh, and like oh like I can see that. you know what yeah. i mean yeah. yeah yeah so i was like marianne no, like that's right. so simple like what are you doing whereas yeah. like i was more interested in the other twos yeah i guess i feel like most people who read it the first time they're like what the fuck is he thinking <laughs> you know because yeah. it's like you know the ending right well so. i think and i think that that comes from our like maybe when i think most people have that reaction that's actually more of a feminist lens because i do i think mm. you're right laura i think that marianne's interpretation is the one that i have come across most often from like traditionalist interpretations where it's like oh yes this this great poet you know would of course he was so in love right exactly yeah Mm -hmm. and i think that's what the story is usually used for as a way of saying like you know yeah like orpheus being this kind of you know brooding like guy and it's totally in line with who marianne is right like because she has this background where she knows the rules the regulations and how to and i feel like she's kind of flirting a little bit with eloise they're a bit like oh actually right right he's a poet right because she has this kind of like funny smile on her face like she's like yeah you know she's like i've actually got this really amazing idea (laughs) and it's this and actually fyi it's me (laughs) (laughs) 
And Sophie's just like, what? Like, I don't know, like, she's maybe hasn't caught on to, like, what's going on between them yet. Or maybe she has. And then Eloise, like, comes back at her again, like, you know, and it's just like, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the way that I interpreted Marianne's smile is that, like, I felt like she, and this is probably me just, like, projecting, but, like, like, it looks like she just dropped some knowledge, right? She's like, actually, it's this. Yeah? Look how smart (laughs) I am. Are you impressed? And of course, Eloise is like, mm, actually, no. And then she <laughs> yeah. like, totally blows Marion's mind. I could also see it as kind of flirty. For sure. Yeah. I feel like the whole scene was super flirty. And like Sophie was just kind of in her own. I don't know. She, you know, she, <laughs> it was definitely like everything they were saying about the story was sort of like a reflection of what was going on, too. Yeah, with them, that's right? true. That's true. But I think like, I mean, Marion is completely floored when yeah. Eloise has totally, her response. Totally. Like, she's just like, uh... What, like she, you can tell she kind of wants to respond but she doesn't even know what to say yeah. and I was genuinely blown away by like Eloise's oh, response yeah, I was like same, whoa yeah. because I was like again like yeah it paralleled like other moments where she had yes. taken agency yeah yes. exactly yeah so I mean in terms of like reception of some of these things so like it's interesting because you can actually parallel these three interpretations with other interpretations that have like come before so even in ancient times so in the first century AD Virgil wrote the Georgics where he basically is saying kind of Sophie's interpretation where he's like Eurydice says kind of you know what is this what great madness has destroyed both me and you or um you know now the cruel fates are going to summon me back why did you do this and whereas marianne's interpretation is much more what was which is probably why it was the one that maybe appeared the most obvious one to me because it's the one that was most popular in the 19th century so like robert browning wrote a poem called eurydice to orpheus in 1864 and it's all kind of you know like oh it's almost like a kind of she's a happy victim of her own death because the love was so great uh you know yeah i know it's like let the mouth the eyes the brow once more absorb me one look now will lap me round forever hold me but safe again within the bond of one immortal look do you know what i mean it's all this kind of like you're such a poet go go and tell my story to the world and our love because it was so strong and like that's the kind of what i think marianne's like going for let's say and actually she does create artwork right that is telling of her love for Eloise forever let's say whereas Eloise is I think the much more modern interpretation that made me think of Caroline Duffy's poem from the world's wife collection of poems where it's Eurydice talking and just kind of is much more like she doesn't want to go back like she deliberately says you know shouts out to Orpheus so that she can go back Mm. so it's like you know picture my face in that place of eternal repose in the one place you think a girl would be safe from the kind of man who follows you around and I think she's kind of going for that right like in terms of you know I want to have agency in this like rubbish situation I find myself in and the normal victim which I think we usually always see as we talked about before like the the women in general as victims they are like victims of the patriarchy let's say but they have agency limited agency but they do the agency that they can Mm -hmm. within the constraints and in that moment I guess it's saying hey turn around Orpheus and he does yeah that's one of the things that i had had in mind when thinking about eloise's response is that her sister kind of made this choice like she took her own life so that she wouldn't have to go back you know she wouldn't have to be with yeah that man yeah yeah i wasn't sure if that like came into eloise's lens but i don't see how it couldn't actually 
That just reminded me, did you both read A Little Life by Hanya no. Yanagihara? I've not read oh it. Oh my gosh. I've heard about it. I know, I I've heard. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. It's definitely not an easy read, but there's a character in it who was in a film about Orpheus and Eurydice, but this Eurydice ends up, I think, choosing to stay in the underworld mm. because her life beforehand had been so difficult and just like this huge burden on her. So the underworld ends up being kind of like a better option for her. But it's kind of related to what you're saying because this Eurydice is actually given some level of agency in this adaptation, you know, which I don't think is normal. <laughs> yeah. Though that yeah. is the one thing just to mention about ancient Greek religious thought in terms of the afterlife is that the afterlife is not somewhere you want to go mm. like that's what makes it very different from yeah. the later monotheistic religions the underworld is rubbish like it's gray it's like you drink from the rivers so that you forget your life and you just become nothing you know like you just float around and eventually won't even have a human form anymore and like there's, there's nothing good yeah. in the underworld right and, you know, in various different myths, different heroes go down to the underworld in order to, um, you know, speak to people who are dead, who are, you know, previous heroes from times before, you know, like um, Aeneas does it in the Aeneid and, you know, Heracles speaks to different people in various different myths and stuff. So. And those heroes who had like, you know, such like kind of fame in life are kind of sitting there quite sad, you know, like yeah. in, in the underworld, they're like, oh, like it's boring here. <laughs> like I wish I was back up, up there. And that informs a lot about how the ancient Greeks kind of lived their everyday life in terms of trying to enjoy life on earth because there wasn't this kind of idea of something to look forward to in the afterlife you don't want to die there was no heaven there wasn't a it was just the underworld a, yeah yeah like it wasn't like a nice place to go you might hope that, that there's like different levels of the underworld you know like asphodel meadows and the elysian fields for the heroes and you know like you can be in like different stages of the underworld but all of them are quite gray and nothing's like happening but hopefully you're not like pu pushing a boulder up a, a mountain or having yeah. your intestines eaten out by a bird or something yeah well exactly so there are like specific punishments but like you're either going to be like punished or you're going to just sit there <laughs> like, it's, it's like it doesn't sound that exciting and i think that that's interesting as well as a theme for the whole film because mm. they know that they can't be right. together they know that it's going to kind of be an afterlife wow. after this romance yeah. ends but they are kind of following that theme of try and enjoy what you can wow. whilst you have it kind yeah. of thing so totally. would you say that the asp in this story represents heterosexuality or patriarchy. <laughs> or patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the marriage does, I guess. Like, oh, yeah. She fell into a nest of patriarchy. <gasps> <laughs> oh, that sounds gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get me out of there. Uh, there was a meme going around saying, you know, give her what she really wants for Christmas, death to the patriarchy and real pockets. <laughs> Marianne would be proud of that one. Oh, that's so good. I have not seen that meme, but we need to put it in an Instagram story now. <laughs> Should we talk about the... The turnaround? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what does the final turnaround mean? What does the final turnaround mean to you? Well, I think this, this is actually quite complicated and where the kind of what it actually means in relation to the three interpretations that they gave before... Mm -hmm kind of confuses it a little bit. So, like, I think that 
Eloise says it because Eloise has the, you know, wants to kind of like have the agency that she says Eurydice should have mm-hmm. in the story. Mm-hmm. So she's telling Marianne to turn around. Because technically, if, you know, if you're following the myth, like if Marianne didn't turn around, then she would have lived, right? And they would have like right. gone off together yeah. into the sunset. But she forces Marianne to turn around and acknowledge that this is the yeah. end yeah. because it cannot continue because of, you know, the yeah. patriarchal yes. structures. And yeah. <laughs> because of the lack of pockets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, it's like an acknowledgement for them both that from this moment, we will both be living in an afterlife. I will be in a marriage that I don't want to have and you will be the Orpheus continuing yeah. in the world, living your life, but not having me and therefore always being sad about the story of us and, and like Orpheus was. And it's almost, I feel like in the Eloise interpretation where Eurydice says, like, because she wants to kind of go back to the underworld type thing to escape Orpheus, actually... Eloise is kind of sanctioning Marianne to use the memory of her in her artwork moving forward. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Like in a positive yeah. way, you know, like kind of like giving consent to using her, you know, what she's learned about her, let's say, to improve her artwork and, you know, moving forward. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Like, I, I still kind of see it as maybe not. I feel like that's a more positive spin on it that I, than I would have given it i kind of see it as sort of going back to like the video game interpretation where it's almost like she was saying we need to accept that this is this is the end like you can't bring someone back from the dead i cannot go with you and like what you were saying initially i want you to turn around and look at me in this wedding dress and acknowledge that this is it you know Mm, yeah because marianne can't save eloise right yeah turning back anyway so yeah and like Allowing her to go without turning around, I think, would have allowed a a sort of version of Eloise to live in Marianne's mind that maybe Eloise didn't quite think was not factual, but like the one that she wanted Marianne to part with. It's like, I think she wanted Marianne to view her in her like in her final form, which is not necessarily happy, but true. But with agency. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, Rather than passive, because in in the other goodbye, when she's upstairs with the mum there and it's really awkward, she doesn't say anything. It's just a bit like, oh, like actually there it's like the memory is Eloise was this, you know, fiery person that was put in the situation that like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. She didn't exist just to be her muse. Yeah. But she will become the muse, but it's like Eloise allowing her to be the muse, like going forwards, if that makes sense. Well, and it's also, it's interesting that Eloise is in the physical space. She's higher, right? So it's, you know, if you think about the myth, it's them, them crawling up out of the underworld. And so Orpheus would be looking sort of back and maybe down. But in the scene, Eurydice, Eloise is like up and looking down at Marianne, who's Orpheus. So is she kind of going down into her own, like afterlife as well like Marianne's yeah. going down into an afterlife yeah I think you can kind of argue that Orpheus in the original story or one of them goes to his own kind of underworld <laughs> like not yeah. literally right but his life is pretty shitty afterwards yeah 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 Yeah. oh yeah we should probably talk about some of the stuff that happens after in the versions but it's interesting versions. to think about like if the myth manifests or like it continues as a metaphor through their lives afterwards like who is dismembering 
Marianne. Maybe I should say that. Because <laughs> in one version, like he's, or in several versions, like he gets dismembered, right? And he's like, head is just kind of hanging out for a while. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. We'll get to that, yeah. Is that her situation when she's teaching? Is she just like her head? Anyway, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to get to more of yeah. spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's like at the end, though, as well, like, you know, in the final scene, mm-hmm. it's like, you're like, oh, you just wanted to turn around and see her in the concert hall, but it's like, the fact that she doesn't turn around means that, like, Marianne gets to live mm, somehow. Yeah. Oh, And wow. therefore she still gives Marianne, she still has agency in a way because if she had turned around and they had seen each other, you know, would they have been able to be together? Right. You know? So, like, would it have been more suffering and more hurt? I mean, I, I, don't, I genuinely yeah. don't think that she huh. saw her. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I think she's too involved in the music that she doesn't see. Yeah. yeah. There. I don't yeah. Think she, yeah. But why doesn't Marianne call out yeah. and be the Eurydice <laughs> and be like, hey, but <laughs> yeah. then would that be another death? Mm-hmm. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Because it would be like, mm. you saw each other and, like, what, gave a little wave and then, like, awkwardly be like oh god and then they just like go back or maybe their roles are reversed at that point yeah i mean like in terms of like looking back looking at looking i mean there are so many things throughout this film which is i mean i don't i mean they've said that like celine didn't the the orpheus whole thing only came into the script like much later on but it's interesting isn't it that like that is the case because it seems so embedded but is that also just a reflection of like greek mythology in general like in yeah you know like almost like subconsciously like she was kind of yeah and then she found the myth and it kind of tied it all together yeah or just kind of like made the link at some point Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i mean we again we talked about last time you know like what you know why doesn't marianne kind of call out i think the first return of toi or return of vu should have been at the very beginning when she's running towards the cliffs because that's the first turning around (laughs) yeah yeah well well no actually it's not the first turning around because the first looking back is um at the very beginning when they in the art studio where all the mm. students turn around to oh, look at true, the painting that's yeah. and that's also like turning around right. to like look back to like think back into memory I think that would have been too much what? I, what? I don't know I think that that was very tasteful if she had said if she had included that line in the beginning mm. as that sort of bookend I think that we would have been like groaning as an audience to hear it twice like that to me interesting I just think it would have been a little heavy handed I think it would have been interesting I think well one I personally believe in Celine Siama's ability to pull it off <laughs> but I think there's a reason she didn't though you I, know, know I mean? know. as a storyteller like she made this I, I'm I'm sure she well maybe I don't know she, she probably made a <laughs> decision because it would it's it's obvious but, but if she did though it's like because when when she turns around and looks they look at each other that's then also their yeah. death right because they are then gonna fall in exactly. love from mm-hmm. then on yeah. yeah so it's like it yeah. would have been a really short film <laughs> oh, yeah. i mean there's just like so many like meta ideas about the looking back stuff as well you know like genuinely like even after i finished watching it i was like do i want to like watch it again because oh, is it yeah. gonna ruin it like you know like yeah. you kind of yeah. have your own like, <laughs> oh, so and then, like and then you're you're looking at in the end scene looking at well i mean the whole thing we're looking at someone looking back on something right <laughs> right, right right and the whole film is a way of looking back Yep. And in the concert hall, we're looking at Eloise looking back whilst looking at something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like I want to map this out visually because it's just like <laughs> layer on layer on layer. There's also the other layer of like Celine looking back at her relationship. Yeah, yeah exactly. Too, right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this whole thing. Is this some kind of like hyper recursion? Like, are we, it's, it feels like we're opening some kind of recursion. Well, yeah. I think it's really interesting. There's, there's actually a Greek term called ekphrasis, which is like the dramatic literary description of a piece of artwork 
which mm-hmm. I feel like the whole film is ekphrasis hmm. of art yeah. and like it is art in itself and then we critique it like this you know uh-huh. we're having our own ekphrasis here <laughs> and like and then if oh, Celine listens it's, it's, to yeah. this podcast she'll be listening to us <laughs> looking back on her looking oh back oh my god it's too much on yeah. art which looks back at um, no I'm getting like you've just ripped a hole in the space time continuum morale <laughs> <No>. uh-huh. <laughs> whoops uh oh like the fact that Eloise is in the wedding dress like looking like a ghost as well like parallels the myth right mm-hmm. and that right. like she's Eurydice right, right. in the underworld is the whole thing like in that in that initial moment when she first sees Eloise when she's running on the cliffs she's so alive in that moment because she's like I'm running you know like first time I've been running but the whole thing that we're seeing is the memory yeah. of a death. Right. And it's interesting, like the ghost appearances throughout are kind of like Eurydice following her to the end of, you know, this journey. Right. Like Marianne sees Eloise as wedding dress ghost a couple of times before she sees her as like actual wedding dress Eloise. Well, I was actually going to ask in the original myth, was there anything similar where Orpheus had these like visions or someone, you know, because I feel like there's always an oracle that's like, hey, <laughs> watch out, you know, your wedding day. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, if there was anything that kind of paralleled the ghosts. Um, I don't think that there's an oracle given to Orpheus that says that he's going to have this experience. But interestingly, mm-hmm. his cult, the mystery cult that I talked about at the beginning, becomes an oracular cult. So there are oracles mm-hmm. that okay. are linked yeah. with at sites where Orpheus has supposedly travelled or visited or you know, there's various huh. places where supposedly he was buried and this kind of thing. But it's funny that like we we've you know like the Eloise's interpretation of the myth seems kind of pro feminist move. And yet actually all of this stuff about looking back is actually going to the more traditional interpretation of you know the Orpheus and Eurydice love story they're subverting it but they're also still saying that like isn't this like beautiful love Hmm. you know yeah that's true which is interesting I think because what blows my mind in the conversation they have is that it's like oh it's not a nice love story and yet the myth is then used to show a love story or is it at least it's an elegy in the Orphic tradition, I guess, because Orpheus then goes around for the rest of his life, like writing right, elegies. Right. And is this just like all an elegy to Eloise? We've got ourselves in a mess about this looking back. Hold on. I'm trying to process like two things at the same time and it's it's melting my brain. I feel like Eloise's interpretation, like it can, I feel like it can be both, right? Like the movie is saying that this encapsulation of this love story is tragic and beautiful at the same time. You turn around, you lose your love, but the love was still worthwhile and good and and whole and beautiful even in that in that small period of time in which you had it. Yeah, okay. So um, like now I'm going back. But then does it all go back to the original Plato symposium thing that I was saying in which Plato says that homosexual love is the highest form of love. Mm, mm-hmm. So And I'm sure he was also talking about Love between women, but <laughs> yeah, he, he was. It, was, he was he really? Is it, yeah, it's actually one of the first um, instances where it says like I am very surprised. women between women. Yeah, yeah, great. There you are. Yeah. See, <laughs> so, the ancient yeah, Greeks great. knew it. Why? <laughs> I would have assumed that they just like completely ignored same-sex love between women, but okay, I'm happily surprised. No. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the moral of the story is that lesbianism is the highest form of love. The end. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's definitely what they're trying to say the message <laughs> yeah, of the story. Right? Yeah. <laughs> of all the, the versions. 
What do you think about the instances, though, where Marianne is being followed by Eloise's ghost and then she feels a presence behind her and then she turns around? So she does it twice, right? Not including the ending. But how would you interpret that? I don't know. I, I actually didn't like the ghost thing. I know that might be a bit controversial, <gasps> but I, I, I know. I'm <laughs> okay, sorry. No, no. But like, uh, well, I don't know. The ghost element... I mean, it's important for, like, the, the gothic references and all of that as well, like, as a as a separate, like, thing within cinema, I guess. Right, right. I guess it reminds you that it's all a memory. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. But then, it for me, it just takes me out of the moment of being there because I'm like, well, the ghost can only have happened when she's already seen that image, right? Right, 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 yeah. But did you know that the first time you saw it, though? No, but it, it jarred with me. Like, yeah. it jarred the fact yeah, that there yeah, was yeah. a ghost. I was sure. like, oh. I kind of was expecting that we were going to see that image of her mm-hmm. at some point in the film. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. But again, maybe that's deliberate to remind us that this is all looking back on Marianne's memory. Well, remind us when we look back that it's a look back because <laughs> we wouldn't have known the first time that it's a look back until we yeah. find out. Because it happens before quite important scenes, doesn't it? Like, is she looking back at what had happened between them in a very overly positive like yeah. it added for me an element of unreliability mm. that we weren't necessarily actually watching what actually happened and that it was actually. Right more a construct of Marianne's memory which from the historical thing I prefer it when it's like more like (laughs) factual I can see that yeah I I think it's interesting in this context because she turns around even though she hasn't been asked by Eurydice to turn around in these moments you know so it's kind of like I'm trying to think about what that could possibly mean because she just she just feels a presence right like let's keep with the myth but there's Eurydice behind her she pauses and then she turns around uh, seemingly of her own accord right because there's nothing else to prompt her and then Eurydice disappears again into the darkness I mean I think it sets it up to subvert the expectation more because that falls in line with like the myth right where she turns around and she literally fades Mm -hmm. away like the shade that she is and then in the end it's like not quite that like that character is actually given agency yeah does she start having those visions after they discuss the myth yes yeah cool okay because then you can see that eloise's Uh, interpretation uh, has affected her and so maybe yeah like (laughs) okay now i'm getting more involved i'm on board now i'm on board so it kind of stuck with her right like is is sort of the feeling that i'm getting now so Eloise blew her mind and then she's kind of like walking around the house mulling it over maybe and maybe it just starts to like infuse with her memories as well or maybe she's not even mulling it over it's just like yeah, yeah I can see that too. it's in her yeah. subconscious now yeah the first time I saw it I was like oh yeah of course it's 18th century France of course this house is haunted <laughs> it's haunted by someone who's still alive <laughs> yeah. yeah or is it the ghosts of all the other women who would have lived in that castle you know oh. <laughs> who were in marriages they didn't want to be in, who oh. had experiences that they couldn't oh, pursue. Yeah, the sister. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> the, another thing that I really liked about the actual discussion scene, going back to that, is that it reminded us that this is set in the 18th century, I thought, because reading a book with right. your friends and talking about it like, like because of the way that it's like being like actually like read aloud you know yeah and right. Sophie doesn't know what's happening and like it's like this is a form of evening entertainment you know we've yeah. seen them playing cards we've seen them now reading a book like these are the options that are available to them type yeah, thing and I think true, that it was interesting that they you know you saw like Eloise having to reread sections to listen again to the story you know like in a way that now we would just rewind. press rewind yeah. or whatever. Actually, it kind of reminds you that actually someone has to actually read it for it to be like discussed. And yeah. I thought it was just kind of interesting about like the power of literature to like change our 
minds and like discussing literature also changes people's interpretations of things and and also then parallels the myths being handed down themselves for generations in like an oral way yeah 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 when's the last time you read out loud with your friends <laughs> right now she just did it yeah. earlier <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just read you some poems. Fair enough. So <laughs> <laughs> the bridge forms. I, yeah. I was reading them in Latin and like you know translating them like Eloise. Oh, does, nice. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Oh, shit. Well done. <laughs> wow, this is the premium content know, you get yeah. on a podcast of <laughs> It's like mixing pop culture with high academia. That's <laughs> <laughs> the best way to do it. I don't know. <laughs> Should we get into how the myth continues? Yeah, I mean, what happens after Eurydice dies, Orpheus basically travels around Greece singing about his loss, you know. Although it's interesting that in Ovid, so again, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, it's actually the story that they are reading. Supposedly after Eurydice, he only has male lovers from then on. And... In some versions of the story, women get upset by him rejecting them in favour of these men, <laughs> which, yeah, I think is interesting in itself. You know, like, again, like, you know, what does Marianne, like, you know, does she get married? Right. Like, to, I don't know, or not. So then after that, he's uh, travelling around um, and then we've got different ways in which he supposedly dies. So Pausanias says that he commits suicide in Epirus because he's so upset. And the city of Dion, we know, had bones, which for many generations were considered to be the bones of Orpheus that people would go and visit and, you know, oh, wow. were part of this Orphic mystery cult. Although there's other cities as well. And then we've got Another tradition that says that Zeus hit him with a thunderbolt and he dies. Maybe he was annoyed at him, like, continuing <laughs> to sing. Stop singing all those sad Stop songs. singing. God. Just get over yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's also kind of interesting, like, you know, like, to be thunderstruck as well. Mm. Is Marianne kind of killed by lightning almost mm. beyond this as well, moving forward? That's the scene in the gallery. That's the lightning bolt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe that's the moment because she then knows that Eloise is still thinking about her. Mm -hmm. So Thunderbolt hits <laughs> and then that's it. But then we've got this other really interesting story about the Maenads of Dionysus basically ripping Orpheus apart. Again, for various reasons. Either was it just stop singing Orpheus, like we don't <laughs> want to hear about like this, or is it from this idea of like they didn't like the fact that he was rejecting them and their advances and this kind of stuff but. yeah it's like well don't come to the orgy if you're not gonna participate Orpheus <laughs> I think he was just minding his own business singing his sad songs at the orgy <laughs> maybe the orgy that was him. really annoying it's like oh god the sad guy's here we're just trying to have sex with a group of people could you not and he doesn't stop and then murder mm, just kill him <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm really curious about that because I've read other versions where it's the I think it's the Bacante or whatever the, you know the frenzied women who are like following Bacchus yeah. and they instead rip his body apart and do other things to him Jeez. and also are described as sort of like this like frenzied cult of women mm. and then they don't kill him right they save his head and his head lives on yeah i mean yeah is that because he's well again in some traditions he's a demigod because he's the son of apollo right right and one of the muses but yeah like the the followers of dionysus were basically drinking all the time and just like having a raucous time and 
yeah, I find it interesting that like he is he killed by women twice. If his life is ruined post Eurydice, mm, uh. who maybe of her own volition said turn around, and then he also gets murdered by women as well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love ancient Greek mythology. It's just so full of random stories, isn't it? So there is a version, right, where his head is, like, placed at the base of Mount Olympus or something, so he could, like, sing forever. Or it, like, floats around in a river. Yeah, that too. We know that there was definitely a cult at Dion, but there's also, um, well, interestingly, perhaps his head got taken to Lesbos. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> or various other places. So, yeah. Like, d- different authors say different things. But, I mean, like, the problem with mythology is that, like, we take some of the, like, myths, like, we, we have kind of, like, oh, this is the canon version of the myth. But mm-hmm. often that version is fragmentary or quite late because, like, that's the, the nature of studying ancient history is that it's just, like, what well, any history is, like, trying to piece together a jigsaw puzzle where you don't have all the pieces and you're trying to somehow make a picture out of the pieces that you do have but in ancient history there are even less pieces so it's kind of a bit hit and miss like what you actually have that like remains so yeah that's why we've got all these like different versions of like what happens and who he was and what he did and some people say that he went on the with jason and the argonauts before he met eurydice and others say it was after Mm -hmm. and that also kind of affects the story in a way doesn't it but i guess that these myths have just been constantly reinterpreted since whenever they were kind of just being constantly passed down and 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 this is another reinterpretation of it isn't it and all those other computer games and yeah. comic books and whatever are yeah. also like reinterpretations of this story that are in some ways not necessarily wrong, right, let's say, you right. know, like it's, it's just yeah. a reinterpretation of the small puzzle pieces that we have. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing that I really enjoy about myths, though, is that they're basically these sort of like oral building blocks, right, that get reassembled in, in various ways. And it's very difficult. It, it might be so difficult to claim that one is an origin like the original version of it that it's almost impossible and so i feel like that kind of makes it open to everybody right and it just becomes well because yeah like i said like ovid's version is from the first century ad by which point the myth is at least like 500 years old by then yeah yeah at the very very minimum we just don't have any surviving versions that are older apart from the story of him with the argonauts and then we've got Apollodorus writing in the second century AD about lots of different myths, but they're quite brief. So you've got Ovid kind of telling it in a literary, like actual story type form. And then you've got Apollodorus kind of being a bit more I mean, telling the stories, but like very, very brief. I mean, the Orpheus story is about three sentences in Apollodorus. It's not like very long. And then you had, yeah, like, you know, plays and, and that have been lost, but we know featured Orpheus and that kind of thing. So it, it's from those like little, little bits that we can piece together the like wider story, I guess. But we kind of have to accept that there's differences between the different versions, which I don't really yeah. like because I usually like you know, being like fact. You know, yeah, like, yeah, this yeah, this yeah. is the story. Like I get really annoyed when things are not historically accurate. Oh, sure. but, like The ambiguity is definitely super uncomfortable. Yeah. But, yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> that's not unique to mythology though, right? Like that's just all oral of history. the history of humans, oral history and written history. It's like mm. just considering Shakespeare as another example, not all of his stories were original to him, right? Yeah. Right, like he's taking like archetypal mm. He mentions Orpheus, actually, Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, did he? Yeah, yeah, uh, briefly. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. And also like we're now reinterpreting it with all of our right. like current historical circumstance, you know, colouring what we think about it. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
So another thing we wanted to cover with you is if any other aspects of the film can be linked to Greek mythology. Well, like the fact that it's all set on an island is quite interesting. Mm. I mean, obviously, you know, the fact that it's, you know, a love story between two women, Sappho. (gasps) I just realized because they like, she takes a boat over too, which I feel like is very... Yeah. yeah. So that in itself could be like the journey across the River Styx, you know, is going to this island going to be her afterlife kind of thing? Mm -hmm. You know, like, is she already kind of meeting her fate in that sense? Is the mom the Cerebus? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the the mom's a a, a tragic character, actually. I find her... I don't want to repeat it, you know, like saying that it's like a generational thing. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, yeah, I think she's sad. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like the actual fact that they're going across to an island, which could that parallel Lesbos, for example, because we don't mm. see any other men there. Could it be like Themyscira, you know, like where the Amazons mm. were supposedly, mm. you know, mm. this like island full of women. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, like Sappho. I mean, there's still never been a film about Sappho. I feel like that should be Adele's next screenplay, oh, you know, yeah. like the life, the life of Sappho. Yes. We were just talking about Sappho in the last oh, yeah. episode and this idea of Sappho replacing Santa. It was a rom-com <laughs> idea. It's, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a whole nother discussion, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Laura's on board. Great. <laughs> What was I saying? Was it- uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an island, um, maybe like the island of Lesbos. Yeah, a version of an afterlife in some way, like the river is the River Styx, mm-hmm. and then like she jumps into mm-hmm. the water, and supposedly in the River Styx and the River Lethe, if you drink the water or taste the water, you start to forget your memories. Oh, so, like, is that interesting oh, as well? Wow. Do you think that interpretation carries over to when Eloise decided that she wanted to swim? In the ocean or the sea. Maybe, yeah. I feel like that's probably more about pushing boundaries in general. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, if, it depends, I mean, all of these things are just, yeah, us just, yeah, like, true, yeah. just <laughs> thinking deeper about things. Like I said, I probably have never even crossed like, people's minds. Oh yeah, for sure. But like, yeah, you know, the fact that they're reading Ovid's metamorphoses, a metamorphosis is a change. Mm-hmm. They are both changed from this relationship, you know. Mm-hmm. They are both now supposedly gay, right? Like that's a metamorphosis in itself. But also Marianne's a better painter. Mm-hmm. She has learned what love is or a form of love, if you want to call it lust or whatever else. And like the transformation, like in the scene when Marianne is actually drawing on page 28, I think there's like a bit of a reversal there as well because Marianne becomes the Eurydice a bit in that moment because she is drawing herself as uh, Eloise sees her as her like the person that she loves that's why she's like drawing in a mirror and the the final bit about like page 28 in general I didn't realize about itself because everyone's talking about like page 28 like you know it's obviously going to be the number of pride now isn't it right, yeah. but like <laughs> I, I was just like hang on a minute like there's writing on that page like what mm-hmm. is actually written on that page and i was like trying to find the actual like section of ovid that is is there and again which is why it's interesting that it's actually a copy from the 18th century because it's actually book 10 of ovid so for it to be page 28 it has to have been like the metamorphoses in like different sections of books, you know, like in smaller versions yeah. rather than the whole text in one book. 
So the bit that is there is the very, very end of chapter 10, where Orpheus is telling stories of other types of forbidden love, which this is also like a story of forbidden love in some ways. And it's the story of Venus and Adonis. And Venus falls in love with this man called Adonis. And he she tells him not to go hunting because uh, if he gets in contact with dangerous animals, he might die and then she'll be really sad and gets hurt. And he does it anyway and dies and Venus turns his blood into flowers and then what the little little section that's on page 28 and again I don't know if this was like done deliberately or not but like the actual bit that is on that page says a thunderclap in less than an hour there came from it a red flower that resembles that of the pomegranate this flower lasts a short time since the same winds that make it bloom also make it fall mm-hmm. and it's just so like tragically relevant isn't it that was totally done on purpose yeah there's no way that wasn't intentional just thinking about like the level of thought and work that goes into making a film and then on top of that it's celine you know yeah i think it's 100 percent intentional but but for the for the fact that they actually used an 18th yeah. century french edition of a book that happened to have space at the end that happened to have <laughs> only that bit that links to the story is actually really interesting. Like, it's not like a, it's not a prop that's been like made. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's really, because I, I, I think that I was under the assumption that it was deliberate in that it was created to create that prop. Maybe that excerpt was, you know, printed onto that page and assembled into that oh, prop maybe. book. Unless someone has a copy of that, I think that's probably true. Like, I think you're right. And I think there was discussion about, like, even in odd page numbers, although back then, right, who knows yeah. if they followed those standards. I doubt it. Mm. But yeah, my money is on that book being totally a prop fabricated for the movie. Well, I mean, they're not going to be actually writing in an 18th century version, obviously, but as in, as right. in like... <laughs> Let's just destroy this. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I thought that it was actually, like, that happened to be in that edition. It happens to look like that, but I don't know, maybe possibly not. And then on the 28th page. Yeah, I feel like there's so many things that would have to align for it to be that perfect on of, page a, 28, yeah. of a prop item. But Yeah, I agree with that. I wish it was and would totally love to confirm either Man, way. If it was, holy crap. But yeah, that line about the same wind that... Makes it bloom, right. also makes it fall. Ah, yeah. Because again, it, it links to the Orpheus exactly, thing, right? In terms yeah. of like, you look or you don't look, oh. either way... It, something happens and something doesn't happen in the same moment. Yeah. I've seen a lot of P28 tattoos. I wonder if anyone's gotten the whole passage I, yet. Oh, interesting. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I feel like like everyone just says, oh, page 28, page 28, but like doesn't realize, because they didn't make a point of it, right? Like it's like such a tiny little thing that you have to notice just from it saying the, the in Roman numerals Ovid reference. Right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Right. But yeah. So let us know if you have gotten that tattoo. <laughs> and if not, do it. <laughs> it's kind of a large tattoo. Well, on the hand, yeah. <laughs> like Adele's one on the... What? Like the... <laughs> oh, the P28? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Oh, oh I meant, the like, yeah, Has anyone actually hand. tattooed that on their hand? Oh, maybe. They have. I've the seen, yeah, yeah, I've like seen the... a couple hand tattoos. Wow. Yeah, Not the full hand, but I've seen um, a couple like on the thumb oh, area. Okay, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Small though. Yeah. Not like the no, whole... <laughs> no, 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 no. I have not seen a full hand tattoo yet. I meant like if you got that passage tattoo, that would be a very large tattoo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That would take up <laughs> a lot more space. <laughs> So, yeah, is there anything that we didn't cover today that you wanted to cover? I mean, I feel like since you're our resident historian, you should just, you know, come back. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it would be cool if you did. You, you mentioned that maybe you can do some polls or surveys or whatever. I don't know, like, or ask 
people to ask questions that they want yeah. oh, answering cool. yeah, yeah. about we'll historical stuff, and then we can do another one with Ooh, people's yeah. questions. Yay, oh, that's a great. great idea. Yeah, we just do a whole Q&A thing. Yeah. Perfect. So, yeah, totally. If you have any questions about any of the historical aspects of the film or mythological aspects of the film or anything else for us or Laura. Specifically Laura. But specifically Laura because we're, <laughs> we'd be useless at this. We're not going to help you. <laughs> <laughs> we can pass it on to Laura. <laughs> you can email us at podcastofladyonfire at gmail.com and you can find us on Instagram at podcastofladyonfire and Twitter at P-O-A-L-O-F podcast. And if you're looking for Laura... Laura, where can people find you? At LAB Historical on Twitter. And I also started a podcast in lockdown that I haven't revisited yet, but LAB History Time with random historical topics for my students. But hopefully I can do some more varied things when I have more of a chance. (laughs) And yeah, Happy New Year, everyone, I guess. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Oh, shit. Happy New Year, everybody. Looking back at 2020 was fun. Yeah. Turn around. Turn around. (laughs) (laughs) Or don't. We don't know. Or don't. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, we should. We should turn around. Don't forget. Don't regret. Remember. Don't forget. Remember. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) (laughs) You're fired. Oh, my God. You can fire me. I quit. (laughs) Neither of us are employed by this. So it's a moot point. Are you guys not? Have you lost your jobs? No, no, no. Uh, oh, no, no, no. This, the, the podcast Over is this. employing us. Like, no, 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 no. We can't get fired from this because we're not employed by it, is what we're doing. <laughs> it's true. Laurel just likes to go around firing people. Anyway, <laughs> if you are enjoying the podcast, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. And thank you once again, Laura, for joining us on New Year's. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you for listening. Talk to you next Bye. week. Bye. Bye. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit lonely and you're never coming around. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit tired of listening to the sound of my tears. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit nervous that the best of all the years have gone by. Turn around. Every now and then Terrified and then I see the look in your eyes